guys, and good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Summer Mode. You guys obviously got the memo because you're here, but um, just so you know, if you weren't aware, we're going to be in one service mode through Labor Day weekend, whatever that uh, day is in September, so uh, for your planning purposes. Uh, but thanks again for being here. If it's your first Sunday, welcome. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm glad you guys are with us today for our worship service. Uh, we are finishing up what uh, kind of amounted to be a spring series in the book of Zechariah, the second to last book of the Old Testament. So uh, if you want to turn there, find it in your pew Bibles or a Bible you brought or your uh, Bible phone apps if you have one of those, uh, go ahead and turn there. This will be on screen though too, uh, so feel free to follow along on slides in just a minute. Uh, but um, Zechariah, if you are just joining us, so since we're at the end of a series, uh, I've been saying this for a few weeks now, it's just hard to summarize uh, all that we've seen all they've been kind of confronted with in a good way, the graces we've seen here, the uh, Jesus-anticipating prophecies that we've seen. There's been many of them. Uh, but basically what Zechariah is, uh, this is the tail end of Israel's uh, history or uh, Old Testament history. And what it is is uh, basically a theological commentary on Israel's return to the Promised Land from Babylonian captivity uh, around 520 B.C., so it's real-time grace, this is history, these are real people, this is a real God, this is a real return from captivity and oppression and separation from God and his good and gracious land to him and back to his good and gracious land. So it's real grace, real history, this is, this is not to minimize it, but the theological commentary on it that the prophets give is to say that God is going to do that for everybody in the future. A time is coming when he's truly going to return people to himself on cosmic, international, so for all nations, high spiritual levels. And it's going to be not geographically centered, but it's going to be spiritually centered. So it's going to be a return from sin, a return from death, a return from slavery to the devil, a return from our, 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 the propensity we had to worship ourselves, from our hard hearts. God's going to return people from all that and more. We're going to see more of this today. Uh, but we've been seeing this in a, in a series of visions, apocalyptic visions about Christ in the future and truths surrounding these types of graces. From their vantage point, again, remember, this is still yet future. From our, our vantage point, this is a past thing. Uh, but the New Testament ahead of time when God would, would be doing these types of things. So in that sense, I mean theological commentary. So we've been saying, kind of summarizing the book this way then, just to uh, say it again from a slightly different angle. Uh, Zechariah is apocalyptic visions and prophetic oracles about Jesus and other New Testament realities from the vantage point of Israel's return from Babylonian exile in 520 B.C. So in this way, Israel is a microcosm of the human experience. They're a microcosm of the human experience. If you ever read your Old Testament, your, your Bible, some of you are brand new to this probably, and maybe you never read the Bible before, Israel, in real-time history, this is, this is the, the, the point, is there are real people like us, real sinners who are, who are being shown real grace. And so they're a microcosm. They're, they're kind of like this dramatization of our experiences being separated from God too. So when Zechariah prophesies, then it really is not just for them, it's for us. It's for the, the nations watching and yearning for a time where God would dwell among us again. And we can see, where we can see his face, where all of our sins will be wiped away. Everything that kept us from him would be dealt with. Everything. All the curses of the world. So everything from why it's so hard to grow corn. Uh, all the way up to our, our personal individual sin and our propensity to just not care about God. That thing that keeps us uh, will, willfully, willingly in our own hearts away uh, from him. And everything in between. God, God is going to come and deal with all of that. Uh, the, the promises of, of the Bible indicate and predict and look ahead to. So 
That's basically the context. Uh, if, you, if you're brand new to this book in the Bible, that probably wasn't enough, but hopefully something there stuck. Uh, basically, just try to look for Jesus here. Understand that the Old Testament's a big, fat, uh, blinking arrow pointing ahead to Jesus in many and various ways. Uh, in, this, in this way, in Zechariah, it's, uh, it's a return prophet. It's one of the last things we hear before Jesus comes, scripturally. So they're full of prophecies about him and very explicit ones at that. We're going to see one today, actually, uh, as well. So let's read it in full, Zechariah 13, 1 to 9, the whole chapter uh, today. We'll look at mostly the first verse and the last couple of verses. A couple of comments on the middle section, I'll get to that. But let's just read it in full here uh, to begin. Today's uh, focus is the prophecy of striking the shepherd and the sheep being scattered, uh, which I'll talk about a little later. All right, Zechariah 13, 1 and following. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the, uh, the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet. I am a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man who stands against me declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Let's pray to begin here. God, thank you uh, so much that Zechariah is in the Bible. Uh, we pray that, uh, that today, through, through Zechariah 13, Jesus, you'd become more famous, just as it's proclaimed, but in, in our lives, in our hearts, as we just sang about too in one of, those, one of those songs. The church here, the Christians here, would be edified and built up, uh, and uh, the, the lost would be saved. Those who don't yet know the graces of God uh, would, would hear and believe. Um, Jesus, this is all about you. Uh, I pray that that... Um, that would be, just become more true uh, for, for all of us uh, after our time. Uh, thanks so much for, uh, for this. Speak to all of us, God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so what I want to do is break this down into, uh, and it's, if you've been here for a few weeks, you've seen this similar breakdown, but the outline, a lot of the tail end of Zechariah lays itself out this way, and that is there's a problem and there's a solution. A lot of the Bible lays itself out this way. Not always that neatly and in kind of one passage or one section, but uh, Zechariah is kind of chock full of these prophecies of a problem. There's an issue, and then this promise, this prophetic promise, looking ahead promise of a solution, which ultimately finds its yes or its goal in Jesus Christ. And so it's the same today. And so what I want to do is look at the, the problem first, but kind of by means of a question, and to look at it this way in, in context with last week. So if you weren't here last week, I'll kind of catch you up to speed here a little bit. Um, but I encourage you to go back and read this sometime um, on, on your own time. 
But in context with last week, when we asked this question, where is sin? Uh, it's everywhere, but, uh, you know, but we'll, we'll talk about it. Uh, where is sin? When, when, when we talk about this through the lens of Zechariah, and, and again, review here for a lot of you, the question is this, and here's the thing. When you think about sin, so when you think about evil or injustice or what the problem with the world really is, what do you primarily think about? And I know a lot of you probably know where I'm going with this already, but still just, you know, it's, do this. <laughs> think about this. Well, what do you primarily think about? What's the, what's the, the, the major thing, the, the, the thing you think about most when you think about evil and injustice and sin, the, the problem with the world? What is it? What's the first thing that comes to mind? In Zechariah 12, last week's chapter, and many other places in the Bible too, Old and New Testament, uh, but in Zechariah 12, the prophecy had to do more with sin and evil being out there, out there. Evil nations that threaten God's people, and so God's promises had more to do with destroying evil out there, things that threaten us. And we tied that to Christ last week, how he is crucified so that things like Satan and death and our, our sin, thinking more objectively, are destroyed and, and overwhelmed. This is part of the gospel. God deals with evil systemically. But that's not ultimately it. The book continues, and these truths kind of continue and snowball, and the perspective changes. So think about all of that, especially if you were here last week, but that's a summary if you weren't. Think about all of that, then look at what the first verse of today's passage was, right in the same context. It's the same prophetic oracle. He's still speaking. God is through Zechariah. In the first verse, in chapter 13, verse 1, still speaking of that day, that yet future day, referring to the day of Christ ahead of time, he says, there will be a fountain opened for God's people to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanness. There will be a fountain opened for the house of David, this is referring to God's people, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanness. And in the verse 2 again, the land is mentioned. And so from Israel's perspective, it's we have problems outside of our city walls, these threats, these nations that are threatening the rebuilding process as we enter back into the land. And then the perspective changes. Now the problem's within the walls. It's within the city. It's amongst the people. It's uncleanness of the heart. It's personal. The diamond's twisted. It's a different facet on the diamond of the doctrine of sin. Where it is out there, it is out there. We can see it objectively, but we also experience it and feel it and believe in it subjectively as well. And then in verses 3 to 6 too, he talks about false prophecy. I'm not going to talk a lot about this today, but in that middle section, he kind of digresses a little bit to talk about a specific kind of sin, which is basically lying. So he says that it, within the land, there is this widespread untruthfulness or lying, and it looks like false prophecy. There's a few things, well, a lot of things probably going on here, but a few things to say about that before we move on. One, he's just identifying lying, I think, and false teaching and condemning that as sin, which again is amongst the people. So anytime we don't speak the truth, and then he ties this with false teaching and prophecy as well. So he says people are lying, but there are people who are saying, I have a word from God, but they're lying about it. They're being false prophets. And part of what you know, the, the heaviness of the punishment there is looking back to Deuteronomy 13 where there's instructions that people should die for false prophecies. And so the weightiness of it's kind of, 
layered on there. That's, that's the first thing. The, the, the second thing is, I think, and this is the more forward-looking element to this section of Zechariah 13, is that when Jesus comes, prophecy will be cut off. There's no more prophecy when Jesus comes he, because he's the end of it. He's the fulfillment of it. So we can prophesy as Christians and that we, we speak truth, but there's no new thing to say or no additional promise that God has yet to fulfill because he came to, to complete it all. Remember, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 1 says. All the promises of God. It's like an hourglass tipped on its side. Everything kind of, kind of funnels into this one person and work of Jesus Christ. All the many and various ways God's working and promising and predicting and typifying and foreshadowing and anticipating kind of funnel down into the one man, Jesus Christ. And not just the man Christ, but his work for us on the cross. And so, one thing we can affirm about that then, too, and, and the New Testament says a lot about false teaching as well. It changes the, the verbiage a little bit to, to say not false prophecy, but false teaching, even within the church. And I think one thing we can glean from this is that as, as Christians, on this side of it, but also heeding the warnings in the New Testament about don't teach false doctrine, and, and for pastors of a church, now some of you are, are, are pastors now in this church or a different church, or you will be, one of the things it means to be an elder, a shepherd in a church, is to call out bad teaching. Not everything is true. There's right and wrongs, and wrong things hurt people. They, wrong doctrines lead people away from grace and from Jesus, and they turn things more on the person and on their own inherent sense of goodness or, or religion or something like that, or just false truths about God and his character himself. And so... When we think about prophecy then and teaching in the New Testament, this is the thing we should think of. Prophets and teachers are not innovators. They're reminders. There is nothing new under the sun. This is a, a huge temptation in academia right now. In fact, when I was in seminary, I remember reading the back, uh, an, an endorsement in the back of this text I got uh, at seminary, which said, um, and I'm going to paraphrase and butcher this, but it's, it's been dozens of years now, not quite that long, but very long time. But it, it said that uh, it, it heralded this person for contributing something brand new to the conversation about Christianity. That they, they broke into the academic, systematic theology field with a brand new contribution. The problem with that is there is nothing new. And, and as this prophecy kind of gets at, you know, if we're trying to contribute something new, we will be ashamed. On the day when Christ comes, he will end all prophecies. He's the final word of God. Nothing new to contribute. We're not, we're not innovators, Christians. We remind. Now, it might be new to us in the sense we've never heard it, but it's not new, new, as in never been spoken before or never been, never been a part of the, the conversation of the gospel prior to us in, in history. So new is always a red flag. In fact, if, actually, if you read some of the um, early church fathers, like Irenaeus, these guys that lived just uh, one generation after the apostles, a lot of them wrote about this. They, they, um, when people called out their teachings as brand new, they despised it. They looked back and said, no, it's not new, and if it's new, it's wrong. If my teaching's new, if it's adding something to what's already been fulfilled in Christ, it's wrong. It's, it's, it's kind of the opposite of what happens today. We kind of celebrate newness. Uh, but, but in the early church, it was, and for many today as well too, but in the early church, newness 
indicated alive. There's nothing more to say about the gospel. It's been said. might be new to us because we haven't heard, but all truth's been revealed in Christ. All prophecies have been, have been fulfilled. Okay, end digression. Back to what I was saying about sin. Where, where, where is sin? So what does all this tell us? We can include the idea of lying and false teaching, but what does all this tell us about the location, the locus of sin? Sin is not just out there. Sin is in here. It's very easy, very easy to identify systemic sins or cultural sins, but turn a blind eye to the great threat of our own wandering, selfish, prone to worship ourselves hearts. We all do it. I do it. It's very easy to do that. And though we all do it, and, and don't hear this as just kind of an oversimplified label, because uh, we all do this, I do this, uh, but that idea in general is more of a traditional liberal perspective on this doctrine, the doctrine of sin and other doctrines related to it. And that is, others are evil, but not me. Or, there are huge problems with our country and world, but have no category for the problems of the heart. So they rail at and post about systemic injustice and evil and sin, but do not weep over their own injustices and evils and sins. And then what happens when this gets Christianized, this idea, is that they see themselves as the solution to the world's problems. They are the good ones who are going to save the world, or maybe in some cases just to judge the world. And so Jesus then becomes more of a coach, more of an example to follow. But in general, he gets shelved for the sake of a few of his moral teachings to keep. And that's all Christianity is to those types of sin definers. But here's the problem with that. When God battles sin, he battles it in here, in the heart, not just out there. The prophecy here in Zechariah 13 is about a, a, a day, which is again yet future for Zechariah and the people of Israel, but past for us, looking to Christ, but about a day when God would address our sin, not just others. It's a, it's a humbling paradigm shift. We've all got to go through it. It turns the whole thing back around onto us. From the, yeah, that's a terrible thing over there, to, oh, I'm a part of the problem. So that those things become a mirror to show me the filth on my face. It's like leaving here uh, from church last week after that big storm we had. Maybe seeing a tree fall over a car, which I heard there was one up the road, wasn't there? Someone told me that. There was a big branch up on 41st here that fell on a car just, just down or something. But um, seeing a tree fall over on a car just north of us and thinking, oh, that sucks. But then going home and realizing that a tree fell onto our house and we had worse damage. So the feeling of, you know, if our problems are just out there, we can grieve, but we're safe to, I'm in this as well. It's in me as well. I'm a part of the problem. My greatest enemy is me. Those types of thoughts. Those are the shifts. Again, the, the, the diamond twisting in the light, look at a new facet of the doctrine of sin twists that the scriptures constantly present before us and show us. It is out there. But if it's only out there, it's almost impossible to be Christian. Almost impossible. Because we don't see our need for a savior. And that's the whole point. Actually, there's a, there's a great example of this in 2 Samuel 
12, which I'll summarize this for the sake of length, but it's a story when King David, in his lust, went and took a man's wife, impregnated her, then has her husband killed. Nathan the prophet comes to David and shares a story uh, with him. Uh, he's a prophet, and it confronts David kind of, but kind of in a backdoor back way. He tells a story about a rich man who had everything, including very many flocks and herds, and a poor man who had one baby lamb, which he raised from its youth and loved it as if it were a daughter. So a rich man who had everything, including thousands of flocks and herds, and one poor man who had one baby ewe lamb and treated it like a daughter and loved that lamb. But the rich man saw the one baby lamb, and instead of using one of his many sheep to feed a guest he was having to show hospitality, he took the one poor man's sheep, slaughtered it, and fed it to his guest. Then look at this. So this is what Nathan says to David. David's response is this. David's anger was greatly kindled against this hypothetical man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he does this thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. See the flip? Injustice out there. He deserves to die. Oh, I'm the person. Has to be both. Has to be both. It is out there. But Nathan's saying, actually, no, you are the man, David. You've done this. Others have done it, yes. Grieve. Speak against it. As king, rule over it wisely. But David, you are a sinner. You've committed this great evil. You've committed this great injustice. Without that shift, you guys, without that shift, this is, this is the, the, the pre-conversion or kind of ongoing part of what it means to be a Christian too, but especially in the, in the early days when we're confronted with grace. See, if we don't have that shift, what, what, what good is Jesus to us? Possibly a moral teacher, but a savior? So the paradigm shift here David takes. If you know the story, he repents and fasts and prays and, and there's, there's um, consequence for it, but he repents and, and God's grace restores him. And it's another, it's another issue. I encourage you to go back and read that sometime too. Uh, but that paradigm shift is crucial. All the sin out there is a commentary on the sin in here. That's the point. All the sin out there should be a commentary on the sin in here. Sufjan Stevens, uh, some of you guys know this guy, um, uh, he has a song called John Wayne Gacy Jr. Cozy up to that one, right? But uh, the, uh, the, the, the serial um, murderer who abu uh, abu kidnapped, abused, um, murdered boys and buried them under his house, he writes a song about this guy. And, and the last line in the song is, uh, speaking of himself, in my best behavior, I am really just like John Wayne Gacy Jr. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. In my best behavior, on my best days, I'm really at my core just like him. Look beneath the floorboards of my heart for the secrets I have hid. So not saying it's a one-to-one, -one, not saying I'm identical with him, but saying I have my own secrets. I hide things under the floorboards of my heart. And in that sense, I'm doing the same thing. 
or to kind of pull from Jesus' teachings in Matthew 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, when, I, when I've thought people a fool, when I've hated people, I've murdered them in my heart, and I'm just as liable, just as liable as the John Wayne Gacy Juniors to the fires of hell as, as those types are. It, it, it is this um, staggering, offensive, uh, almost redefining in one sense teaching that raises the hurdle bar so high it's impossible to jump over. So that when you're hearing the Sermon on the Mount, you're not thinking, okay, well, that sucks. I thought I was getting over it, but now I've got to jump higher. Okay, I can do this. But thinking, actually, it's not six feet up, it's, it's 100 feet up. And it's literally impossible for me to jump, which means literally impossible for me to be saved unless God does something. When we're in that spot, we're in a really great place. So again, just let me be clear. Without making this paradigm shift, it's impossible to read this prophecy in Zechariah the right way. It will greatly limit our ability to truly understand the severity of our own sin and relatedly the amazing length and breadth and width and depth of God's love for us in His Son, Jesus Christ. And the extent He had to go, the chasm He had to fix and cross to, to save us. We just simply won't see our need for him as much as we otherwise would. When the doctrine of sin gets bigger, the doctrine of grace gets bigger with it. When you shrink sin, you shrink grace. And so when sin gets bigger, the Bible says, grace abounds all the more in the book of Romans. And so this is why we do this. It, it's, not, it's not the end of the, the sermon. It's, it's not the end of the story. Israel's, the world's, ours, this sermon... Zechariah, it's never the end, but we have to go through the dark tunnel to see the light, always, whether we know it or not. This is, this is the rhythm of the Christian life as we read and reflect and meditate and sing and take communion and pray and listen and learn and preach. This is, this is the rhythm of life. This is who we are. The worst of things out there are also in here, and so we have a really big problem. But that sets the stage for the next, the next section. Verses 7 to 9, which the, is the solution, uh, which I'm just going to call here the striking of God's shepherd. He says, my shepherd, in verse 7. I'll, I'll just read it again. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. This, this man standing next to God is the shepherd. And he says, awake, oh, he's awaking his sword to strike at this shepherd declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd, and this is key to uh, the sheep will be, will be scattered. And um, before we even comment on that, and I'll, I'll come back to this too, but just to say this right off the bat, um, why does verse 7 begin this way, do you think? In context, if you're just reading the first part of it, all that stuff about sin, the problem, or if you just know the problem in general, what makes verse 7 so striking? No pun intended, that was striking. What makes it so striking? Why doesn't it say, Awake, O sword, against my people who have sinned against me? Strike the evildoers. Why doesn't it say that? Why doesn't it say, Awake, O my people, and try harder to keep my commandments? Religiously, almost logically, it would make sense. It would follow. This is the problem. You're not okay. So I'm going to strike you and punish you, or here's my laws, keep following them and try better, try harder. None of that. None of that. 
You know, why doesn't it say, try harder to be righteous? Cleanse yourselves from idolatry. Isn't that what we'd expect? Instead, what we see is, strike my shepherd, which is very confusing, out of place. It's supposed to be out of place. Because the theological logic is out of place, unless you have grace. It's out of place. We should be the ones struck. We should be the ones struck. Do you see? Do you feel that? We should be the ones. We've all committed idolatry. We all have uncleanness in our heart. The problem's in here. But here at the very end of the Old Testament, we have this, pro- this prophetic promise, this image, this, this hope that someone else will be struck. It won't be us. So instead, that's what it is. Strike my shepherd, which is a direct reference to Jesus' experience pre-crucifixion and also his crucifixion. So let's just read that now for context. In the New Testament, Matthew 26, it says, Then Jesus said to them right before his crucifixion, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, referring to his resurrection, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Note that promise. All of them will fall away, but I promise you, Jesus, I swear to you, I will not hold that thought. I will not. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter again, he's doubling down on the promise. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. All right, here's the big picture. Jesus himself said that Zechariah 13 is about him. Jesus himself says Zechariah 13 is about him. He is the one standing next to God who is the shepherd who will be struck. And his sheep or his friends or disciples are the ones that are going to be scattered. So he says, when I'm arrested, when I'm struck, this whole experience around my crucifixion, it will send you running. The question then, second, secondarily, kind of going off this second issue, is why is this such an important prophecy? It really is important. Why does Jesus take time to quote it, to reference it, to kind of organize his own passion or experiences around it? And there are, there are two things here. One, the first thing is, uh, the strike has to do with the striking of Jesus. And it says the striking of Jesus provides us a fountain of grace to drink from. And so hang with me here on a quick little buggy ride through the Bible on this theme of being struck and pouring forth and how that leads us to Jesus. The same word striking is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer to when Moses struck the rock in the desert and it poured forth water to nourish and quench the the thirst of thirsty Israelites in Numbers 20. It's the same rock that in the New Testament the Apostle Paul actually calls Jesus. That rock in 1 Corinthians 10.4, the rock that Moses struck, was Christ. That rock was Jesus. So it pointed to him. It was a foreshadowing of him. In the same way that rock was struck and nourished, so was Jesus struck. And nourish. So it's interesting here that in Zechariah 13, it promises this future day where on that day there will be a fountain opened to cleanse the people 
from sin and uncleanness. And then, in greater context with chapter 12, and in John 19, which you looked at last week if you weren't here, another prophecy about Jesus being spear, pierced through with a spear, and pouring forth water and blood. It's, it's, it's interesting in greater context that Jesus' piercing would elicit a pouring forth of water and blood. And that is to say then that Jesus' blood is the thing that serves as the fountain, the washing agent that is powerful enough to cancel sin. It's layered, right? It's very nuanced. But basically think, when things are struck and pour forth water, narratively and prophetically in the Old Testament, that theme finds its goal in Jesus who was struck or crucified for our sins and who poured forth living, cleansing water from God and also his blood. This is why when his side was pierced, water came out like a fountain, but blood as well to tell us that it's actually the blood, not the water, his blood, his death that cleanses us from our sins. Blood came out, not law. What's the cleansing agent? When Jesus' side was pierced, did a list of Ten Commandments pour out of his side? What's the cleansing agent? His blood. His death. See, it's not a means to something else. It's not saying, I'm dying so you have more internal power and ability to be good. I say, no, it's actually alone my death. It's alone my crucifixion. It's alone my love for you and my grace. This is what the prophets indicate. A fountain will be opened. Not you will open the fountain. It will be, in a passive way, opened for you. Implied by God. This is what we see on the cross. No one was manufacturing that. It happened on God's watch. It was his willing love and grace that went there for you and me. He's the fountain. His blood and that water and blood that poured from his side is the cleansing agent. That's why it's such an important prophecy in Zechariah 13. Second, building on that, has to do more with the latter part of the prophecy, the scattering of the sheep. The scattering of the sheep tell us who's in control of our salvation. So, the Bible predicts, it, we just read this, that when Jesus was crucified, no one would come to his aid. His friends, especially, would desert him and deny him. To varying degrees, still, they all succumb to cowardice and selfishness and fear, like we would in the context of love. Why, why is this important? A couple things. One, if Jesus was rescued we'd all be lost in our sins. So just think about that for a second. If Jesus was rescued, this had to happen, if he was rescued, if at any point he said, yeah, no thanks, and went off the road to, to Calvary, we'd all be lost in our sins. So in that sense, really basically, this scattering of sheep had, had, to, had to occur. Then we early, if the sheep were not scattered, could that imply that they would rally? and surround and maybe save even Jesus? See, the gospel is not about us making promises to Christ. The gospel is not the good news about how much we'll stick with Jesus through thick and thin. The gospel is about Jesus saving us 
and sticking with us or sticking with the plan to die for us by grace. If the disciples didn't scatter, we could confuse the gospel entirely with our works or bravery or salvation is by willpower or our commitment to Jesus or our ability to stick close to God with our acts of righteousness. But that is decidedly what, not, what did not happen. No one stayed with him because no one stays close to God with their own good works. This is why it happened. None of us. No one stays close to God with their own good works. Jesus was alone saving us because no one else could save us or themselves. Elsewhere in John 13, Peter says, uh, at the Last Supper, Jesus washes the disciples' feet as a servant. It's like the worst of jobs. Peter said to him, and, and again, remember, this is why I kind of highlighted Matthew 26. Remember this. Mark this down. I'll die with you, Jesus. This will never happen to you. Remember earlier in Matthew 16, if you've read this story, you, you'll never die. And Jesus is constantly rebuking Peter and saying, quit trying to tempt me away from my, from my mission. And here it's similar. In John 13, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. I should be washing yours. You're the teacher. I should be washing your feet. But look at this note here. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Fountain language again, by the way, right? Fountain language. Zechariah 13 language. Blood language. If I don't wash you, you are not saved. You have no share in salvation. Think about that. The mentality of serving God can actually itself keep us from salvation. The mentality we can have waking up, Christian or not, here today, thinking the essence of the faith is me serving God. Well, what does this say to that? The essence of our faith is not serving God. It's not you serving one who can never be served or given to. He has everything. The essence is saying, accepting the fact there's nothing we can bring. We don't add anything. We bring nothing to the table, so to speak. But humbly accepting God's gracious offer to be made like us and to kind of be lower than us as a servant, even though he's king of the universe. And ultimately, he washes us and he washes our feet spiritually on the cross. This is where this is headed. Ours from this juncture, this point. The fountain. But if we're not careful, too much of the idea of serving God, there can be an okay dimension to that. There can be an okay spirit behind wanting to serve God, but too much of that mixed with our pride. And especially when we say, you shall never wash my feet, Jesus. It's about me doing things for you will actually keep us from the faith that we think we're so close to in the first place. So to, to wrap all this up, a few things here. Um, I, I started by talking about the, the, the two loci, is that the plural? Um, locuses, loci, whatever it is. Locations, I'll stick with locations, I guess. Uh, locations of sin, out there, objective, in here, subjective. For Christians, there's a third location. For Christians, and well, for all of us, if you're not a Christian, this is kind of part of the offer of the gospel for you to, to understand and believe in this. But for Christians who, people, sinners become Christians, this is 
the third location. The third location is to look at the cross and say, my sin is on him. It's out there, the threat, it's in here, internal threat. But as Christians, we believe our sin's been placed on him so that he died for us. His blood was poured forth and he was punished and disciplined and killed in our place. This is the gospel. Believing that makes someone a Christian. You believe God loved you unto death? That he died a horrible death because you're in my sins are that bad? That he, that he was provided as a fountain, pa- passive towards your and my actions? The prophecy is not go and create the fountain, find it, but it will be, a fountain will be opened for you. Future tense, but also passive. Will be opened for you. Believing that is what transfers someone from sinner um, outside the camp, so to speak, to sinner who's loved, who's changed, transformed, identified as a child of God and saved who washes themselves in the gracious good news of that salvific fountain. So at the, at the, at the very end of this then, there's kind of a, um, a warning of sorts. It's uh, also good news. But the result, he says in verse 8, in the whole land, declares the Lord, and this is a prophecy looking ahead, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I'll put this third in the fire. I'll, I'll refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They, the saved ones, will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. They are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Don't you love that God speaks first? Those of you who are Christians who are saved, God, God is willing and he, he delights in calling you his children. He delights in you says, those are mine, but like a proud father or mother saying, that's my boy, that's my girl. That, that's what God is like through the gospel because he so much deals with our sin, so much cleanses us. He, he kind of, in Acts, it talks about being blood-bought, so much purchases us back from sin that we can be called by God. And, and then, oh, then and only then we will say, the Lord is my God. And so there's two things here. And we'll close with this. One, not all are saved. Two-thirds are not, one-third is. This, is. this is akin to when Jesus says, the road is narrow and few find it that leads to life, but the road is wide and many find it that leads to destruction. Most will not be saved. So this is, this is a prophetic anticipation of that latter Jesus teaching. When Jesus teaches that, he's saying, he's in grace saying, make sure you're on the narrow path. Follow me. Believe in me. Be cleansed in the fountain. And so God in his, in his good and sovereign grace for us today as a church, he's, he has us listen to this so we can, in love, know that he's patient. He wants us to be a part of the third. And we can ask ourselves, are you? Are you part of that? Are you, are you, do you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you found forgiveness as God gives it to you? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? You know, and then, then, he, then you're purified, refined, uh, but, you're, he, but then he looks at you and says, you know, you're, you're mine by grace. He's like a father, not a boss. A grace giver, not a judge. So that, that, that's the one side. The second piece is just to rest in the fact that, look, look, at what, look at what the essence of salvation is. You know, if, if, 
if the prophecy is here where you know, all the stuff's going to happen, the, the shepherd's going to be struck, and at the very end, it just it talked about us. Am I on? I'll just yell if I'm not. Um, it, the prophecy talked about that, that it was just about us doing these things, and it was sort of, um, uh, what's the word, uh, more of a uh, transaction where God, you know, intended to transact this salvation experience for us where he moved from here to here, but he was still way over here. It's not as good news. You know, the, the goal, the result of salvation is that we would know God. The result, actually before that, that he would know us, truly know us. And so in Matthew 7, I think it says, is when Jesus comes back, he says that on that last day, it will be about did you know Jesus or not? Not about what you did. Because many people who are very good still won't know Jesus. And they'll be cast into the pit, it says. This is Jesus' teaching. But people who are maybe good and bad and on the whole spectrum of, you know, just messed up people who are saying, I, but I know him. I, I know Jesus and he, and he knows me. I've been captivated by this gospel. Those are people who are in. Who are, because this is, this is not a religious exercise. This is actually real hope. God is, he really exists. He really loves you guys. He really died for you. The problem is, what the Bible's fixing, is we're not where God is. We don't know him. We don't submit to his wonderful, gracious, and glorious ways. We worship the self. And so the gospel remedies that. Not just a couple of neat little morals to keep. So this is good news, but also an encouragement. Is Know that this is, there's lots of grace in that but then an encouragement to know Jesus off the basis of the fact that he wants to know us. So this week, know that. Pray, read, get in community. Know the gospel to know God. You might listen to him and hear what he has to say to you and his love and his grace for you, rather than what you have to offer to him. Uh, This is the the humbling, joy-filled gospel that Hiawatha uh, we need to remember and sing about and, and, uh, and re-bask ourselves in today. So that's the prophecy. That's what Zechariah 13 is about. Let me pray for us, and we'll sing a couple last songs here to close.